brute force. If it doesn't work, you're just not using enough. You're listening to Software Radio, special operations military news, and straight talk with the guys in the community. Soft Rep Radio, on time, on target. Thanks for checking out episode 393 of Soft Rep Radio. This is the best of some of the Navy SEALs that we've had on the show. I mean, if you look back on this show, we've had plenty of Navy SEALs on. These are mostly more recent, mostly in studio, and just some of my favorites that we've done and and that got a great response from you guys in the audience. Uh... Just to give you an update on everything going on with SoftRep Radio, I'm very excited to announce that we have a new website up. It's SoftRepRadio.com. Our webmaster, Chris, did an amazing job on that, so go check it out now. SoftRepRadio.com. Now with SoftRep becoming the news rep, it just made sense to have our own platform, so it's SoftRepRadio.com. And with that, we also have a new Facebook page, Facebook dot com slash soft rep radio we just started it so that's why it's kind of light on the likes so if you can go there right now facebook.com slash soft rep radio and like it i'd greatly appreciate it as always uh our clubs are doing awesome and we hope that you subscribe if you haven't already if you're a dog owner check out kuna.dog that's our dog crate for all of you guys who uh, own a canine and Want some healthy treats and training aids for your dogs? Check it out. Kuna.dog and, of course, Crate Club. CrateClub.us. I've been talking to Scott Whitner about what's on the horizon. A lot of uh, custom products on deck, especially for 2019, which is right around the corner. Uh, And that NFW Watch collaboration, that's like the big premium tier item. And if you don't already know, we have several tiers of membership depending on how prepared you want to be. So check that out, crateclub.us. With that, I'm going to start this off with a shorter clip back from episode 261 with former Navy SEAL and uh, current firefighter Frumentarius. And that'll be followed by another clip from Brent Gleason, who was in studio. And uh, so this Frumentarius clip, he talks about which was harder, buds or serving as a SEAL? That's the question that he got on Twitter. And from there, we're going to bring it over to Brent Gleason, who talks about his origin story as a SEAL and some really cool combat stories. So check it out. Which was harder, completing buds or serving in in the SEAL teams as a SEAL? I, you know, that's a good one. I think these days, in the last maybe decade, it's probably harder serving in the SEAL teams just because of the ops tempo and deployment cycles and the work they are doing overseas it may it may be harder to be a, an actual active duty seal than to go through buds back when i was in it was you know buds was was hard and then there wasn't any there was not major combat stuff going on in the early 2000s before iraq kicked off 
and there's a little bit in Afghanistan for a couple of years, but, um, so I don't know these days I, you'd have to ask somebody that's been around more recently than I about that. But of course, bud sucks in many, many ways, but you always know it's finite and it's going to be done at a certain point and more. And usually they're not going to kill you. I mean, generally speaking, so that's always good. Yeah. Even though there have been some accidental deaths, uh, from, uh, swimming exercises and stuff like that more recently. Yeah. We've, there's been guys that have drowned a couple times and, um, there was a guy that died of hypothermia a decade or so ago. And then, uh, I, I think those are the main ones. That's re- generally the, the main ways that it happens. There's been guys that have gotten flesh eating bacteria. Uh, that was about the time I was going through. They started hitting everybody up with all kinds of antibiotics when you went through hell week, because there was some kind of flesh eating bacteria going around down there at the strand, which was nerve wracking. Your, your immune system's so beaten down during that training that you become, and you get, you know, sores and blisters and just generally you're more susceptible to getting things. And that is not one you want to get to cellulitis that turns into a flesh eating bacteria or whatever. So I, I was lucky enough to avoid that. So, so, uh, you know, we kind of, this is soft rip radio and we didn't even ask you, you know, could you tell us about your time uh, yeah. in the Navy SEALs? <laughs> yes, what, that's important. You know? Well, I was thinking it, the same thing. It's kind of a funny story and we, we talked about this earlier, but, um, so I grew up in Dallas, um, and, uh, did my undergrad education at Southern Methodist University. I got degrees in finance and economics and had no aspirations of joining the military. My dad was Marine reservist in Vietnam, never deployed, uh, and never pushed on my twin brother nor I, you guys need to need to serve. And keep in mind, this was just right before 9-11. So right, right. the mentality was to, of service was, was a lot different. It was more of a, maybe a personal challenge or, you know, a resume builder or right. wh- whatever it is. Some college School money loans. Yeah, whatever. exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And so I started working as a financial analyst for a year, but I had, uh, a roommate of mine that had graduated with me, he went into the Navy, uh, intelligence officer, now is the youngest ever director of the counterterrorism op center, has a, had a phenomenal non-special operations career, but has done a lot of, let's just say he knows a lot more than you and I do about what's <laughs> really going on. And had, we had another buddy who was a year behind us, um, who was a senior while I was working, and he was one of these guys who wanted to join the Navy and try for the SEAL teams. It's what he'd wanted to do since he was a little boy. And so we started training together just to help him prepare and a way for me to stay fit. And then I started reading some more books about the history of the Naval Special Warfare community and everything from underwater demolition teams in World War II to Vietnam, Korea, you know, Middle East operations. And gradually, obviously, became more and more fascinated by, you know, the history and the culture. Of they that. sucked you in. Yeah, it just, I, I got, <laughs> I started drinking the Kool-Aid and got sucked into the, to, to the Black Abyss. I'm assuming you had to have read Dick Marcenko's book. Well, I feel like that's, that's the first one I read. All of, them, yeah. <laughs> of course. And I was like, I want to bench press 500 pounds. I want to eat glass and shit fire. <laughs> but uh, then I realized later that I have never once bench pressed 500 pounds in my entire life. <laughs> Bare chested in the snow. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. Uphill both ways. Yeah. Um, quickly realized that it's just we're all just regular people but um so read a lot of those fiction books a lot of non-fiction books anyways we started training together and that coupled with the rather boring nature of my entry-level financial analyst position uh finally decided to live a life without regret and take on this challenge and quit my job and then he and i moved up to crested butte colorado um, and how old were you at this point i was had graduated work for a year so 22 23 oh wow yeah so 
Uh, so we moved to Crested Butte for six months, trained for an additional uh, you know, period of time during that six months for you know, four or five hours a day um, at about 10,000 feet altitude to get into really, really good physical condition. And then early 2000, joined the Navy, went through basic, uh, joined BUDS class 235, um, about 23 of us graduated, and then I was assigned to SEAL Team 5. Uh, Afghanistan at this point had, had already spun up, so 9-11 was literally two days before we started SQT or SEAL Holy qualification shit. training. Wow. So that was, again, a whole instant, as you know, mindset transformation yeah. of here we go, guys. And so you're going to be the ones. Yeah. So we, so we, <laughs> we checked back in, you know, a day early to SQT and they didn't accelerate the, the training pipeline necessarily because there was already guys teed up, ready to go over team one, went over there. And obviously our tier one assets were boots on the ground very shortly thereafter. And so we did our, our work up and then Iraq spun off. So we, uh, my task unit from five, uh, was actually the first SEAL task unit operating in Baghdad, Ramadi, Fallujah. We got there in April, 2003. So we kind of, I wouldn't say rewrote the book, but definitely tested the book on close quarters combat. Right. These capture or kill missions we were doing to hunt down these guys, basically raids or whatever you want to call them. And, uh, so it was a, you know, again, another fast paced time of constant transformation, always filtering lessons learned back from every single mission we did. Op tempo for that type of mission profile back then was super high. Uh, we were doing ops almost every night. And we go for, you know how it is. You'd go, you'd go fast and then nothing happens. And you go fast and nothing happens. The sandstorm comes through and you're <laughs> yeah. like, thank God I get to sleep. <laughs> our, no, our very first mission, it's kind of a funny story. We were not even in country yet. So we, we had been staged at Ali Asalim Air Base while um, traditional forces, and I think SEAL Team 3 was with them, pushing up through from the Afa Peninsula up to Baghdad. And then we trans uh, we did our turnover with Team 3 in Ali Asalim Air Base in Kuwait. But while we were there, we hadn't even gone in Iraq yet. We were given our very first mission. And the first mission was to assault and capture the uh, Mercurian uh, Dam and hydroelectric power plant uh, that was in central Iraq. Um, Intel, which was, this won't shock you, but a little bit spotty, <laughs> a little bit gray, had said that uh, retreating Iraqi forces and some um, insurgent factions had taken control of this dam, kind of like ISIS had done in, in the recent past. Uh, they were going to potentially destroy the dam, flood the areas below, cause mass power electrical outages, flooding the areas below, too, to help sort of slow the advances of American troops through that area. What dam was this? I'm not probably not pronouncing it right, but Mercurian. Mercurian. Okay. No, it's just interesting. I ask because uh, my unit. I wasn't there. I was in. um, I was in actually the indoctrination program. I was in RIP when the invasion happened, uh, and three seven five hit Haditha Dam, Mm -hmm. and and for the same reasons, there's fears that they were going to break the dam and flood everything downriver. Yeah, Yeah. we we spent a little time at Haditha too when we had our SDB teams uh, diving the lakes looking for. Weapons of mass destruction. No shit, really. <laughs> they didn't find any, but uh, yeah, I'll that's, get into that. In that's a an interesting story. Yeah, <laughs> but um, the, I, I, the, this story is about sandstorms. So it was, you know, first combat mission for everybody in the in the troop. I mean, obviously, no, no none of us had been right. to war right. before, and you know, some of these guys have gone off to tier one units and had amazing careers. But for all of us at that one time, this was our very first mission, and it was a pretty complex high-profile mission with we were uh, integrated with the polish grom so we had about a total so you know trago and oh yeah oh yeah worked with him (laughs) on that first tour in 03 uh every night and um so we had about six or seven fully loaded chinook helicopters with our task unit two seal platoons a seal mobility platoon two uh 
two troops from Polish Grom, that it was about a three-and-a-half-hour insert uh, oh, to the shit. target. So you can imagine how your body's feeling by that time. To you know, faster open, we were going to be the primary assault force. Uh, the Polish Grom and the mobility guys would provide a blocking force as well, as well as securing some of the secondary structures surrounding this plant, and we were taking down the main structure. But, you know, first day, we're, we're a go, we're a green light, we're all geared up. Literally, the, the rotors are turning on the Chinook. This will sound very familiar, I'm sure. We literally, we load on the birds, and then all of a sudden, the kank bird flies in. <laughs> Mission gets rolled 24 hours because of sandstorms. Oh, okay. <laughs> Same thing happened the next night. Same thing happened the third night. By the fourth night, we finally got green lit. And uh, so it was just like this <laughs> emotional roller yeah, coaster. Yeah, yeah. You're, you're a go, you're a no-go. It's the hurry up and wait military yeah. mentality. So No, that's interesting. I'd never heard that story before. It's a new one for me. Yeah, yeah. But it, uh, it was a good way to cut our teeth and learning what... Uh, what what this type of mission profile was going to look like yeah yeah exactly i mean that's like that was like the whole uh, attitude or the whole um you know just feeling when we were doing like all those time sensitive yeah. targets like <laughs> it's on it's off it's on it's off it's on, blah, 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 blah. you know you're going outside the gate you don't even have a grid location you're going to yet <laughs> what the fuck and i was a driver on? so that was always a frustrating yeah yeah <laughs> yeah towards the end of my second deployment i was the um I was a TC on the lead striker um, for our convoy, and I, there were times when we went outside the gate. I didn't even have a grid location. Uh, like I'm still waiting on that, and then I'm having to like program it into the computer as we <laughs> on the drive fly. down the street in Missoula. Yeah. I'm like, what the? Well, and, and a lot of our things in, in the early days in, in 03 in Baghdad, it was you know Baghdad, Ramadi, Fallujah. It's about the size of the Dallas Fort Worth area. Yeah. Not only so we were using Humvees, and before. IEDs and things like that became more prevalent. We were using Humvees and trucks as insert platforms, and some nights the target could be 10 minutes outside of our compound, mm-hmm. 30 minutes outside of our compound. Sometimes we were doing two, three hits in one night, but some of them would come up last minute, or we'd yeah. gather some intel from one target and be like, hey, let's go hit this other target. Sometimes they were dry holes. Sometimes they You're were. on your way back home for hot sandwiches. Yeah, and no, exactly. And then you're like, damn it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you were also in the SEAL teams then. I mean, that, during that t- time period, I mean, you saw, speaking of change, I mean, you, yeah. you must have seen that dramatic change happen in, you know, the Special Operations Task Force and Naval Special Warfare. When, like, I think it's still changing. We all evolved so quickly. It, it was structurally, the way we deploy, our, our training cycles, everything was in a constant state of flux mm-hmm. as far as where teams would deploy, when, you know, and it, even just in the, you know, I wasn't in all that long, but even in that brief period, we changed significant things as far as our deployment cycles and which teams would go where. You know, sometimes it was a, a whole team would be going to one theater. Sometimes they'd split the team up and send them to two or three different theaters, and then they'd swap them <laughs> halfway through so guys could get because everybody was bitching if they went to Paycom and they wanted to go to Simcom. <laughs> <laughs> people didn't want to be sitting people, in Guam. Or people the were bitching about going to Paycom. Like, I know. I, I want that I, deployment. I was like, I want to go to Paycom. <laughs> yeah. I, I never got to do a Paycom deployment. I went and visited uh, the Philippines for work uh, last year, and I was like, this is bullshit i got sent to iraq and afghanistan and there, there were like first group guys who were getting sent to the philippines like for real how did this shake out yep yeah it's just uh it's just how it is but uh and my last one was in africa which there were some cool parts about that but uh we're in we're in africa did they send you um we were in kenya sort of that was our sort of mission profile was it wasn't a traditional uh, team or troop deployment it was uh, me and several other team, team guys supported by a, a SWIC team uh, we were there basically teaching them 
this was at least the initial premise of why we were there. There were some political reasons, and there were some other things we were doing up north uh, of Kenya um, on, in our spare time. But uh, we were there essentially teaching the Kenyan Navy. I'm going to use that term loosely. <laughs> Don't think Navy. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, in maritime interdiction. So policing their waters a little bit better against piracy and, and, and things like that. And so... I was one of the primary instructors, and we developed this curriculum, and I quickly realized that most of these guys couldn't even swim, so I also started swim lessons <laughs> for everybody, and uh, I would say running a range with some of these guys and the crappy weapons they had was more dangerous than most areas I've been in. in yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah, you feel safer getting shot I just say I had full body armor yeah. on. <laughs> Literally, you would sneeze, and they'd have a negligent discharge. <laughs> getting them to stop firing on full auto every time they pull the trigger, that's a real, that's a real challenge. Yeah. It's a real challenge. Yeah. That was Brent Gleason, Navy SEAL. If you want to check out that full episode, that was back on episode 328. So you can listen back to that. Uh, I'm going to bring it to another guy that we had in studio more recently, Jack Carr. Jack Carr is his pen name as he talks about in uh, the full episode. But this is him talking about his own SEAL origin story and his time in the Navy SEALs. And he had a pretty long career serving in several SEAL teams, which you'll hear all about. Check it out. I'd love to also get into your actual Navy SEAL background, starting from, I'd have to look at my notes here, but 1997. Yeah, I went to Bud's in early 97. Yeah, and, so uh, yeah. what was like the motivation to become a SEAL? I mean, I feel like yeah. everybody has a different story from Drago's been on here who literally nice. like saw the movie Navy SEALs <laughs> and Charlie Sheen and said, I want to do this yep. to, you know, other guys who just had adversity growing up. I think it's always like a unique story yeah. for you guys. Yeah, Drago and I were on the East Coast together. So uh, we were in, in Iraq together. Um, great guy. Um, <laughs> An interesting character. Yeah, yeah. It's been a few years since I think the last time I ran into him was at SHOT Show about three or four years ago. But, uh, but great guy. Um, yeah, so I always knew I wanted to join the military essentially from my earliest memories. And uh, my grandfather was in World War II, and he was killed on the aircraft carrier Bunker Hill wow. in May of 1945 when two kamikazes uh, hit, the, hit the aircraft carrier uh, that day. He was a pilot, flew that uh, Corsair, which was that uh, plane with the gull wings that would fold up so you could fit them on the, on the deck. And that first kamikaze essentially was a direct hit on the ready room. And wow. uh, he was never even found. It was, he's still listed as missing in action. But uh, I grew up with, and it almost sunk the carrier. I took it out of the war. It limped back to, I think, Seattle for repairs, but it never, never, uh, never made it back to the, uh, to, to the war. Uh, so I grew up with his pictures of his old squadron, pictures of that plane, uh, silk maps that they used to give aviators back then so they could get wet and wouldn't, wouldn't disintegrate if they hit the water, uh, his old medals, his wings. So I grew up with that stuff. And uh, essentially, he was even though I never knew him, um, he was a, a hero and to me as a, as a little kid. Uh, and then I think it, it was age seven, I found out what Navy SEALs were. So we were watching the... Uh, so. Back then, no no remote control. I was a remote control for my dad during football games. And on Sundays, uh, during the commercials, he'd look at his watch and say, go. And I'd run up to the TV, and I'd switch the channel from football to whatever movie was playing on the opposite station. And back then, it was usually a um, World War II movie back then. And so we'd have two minutes to watch that movie, and then I'd run back up, switch it back to football, and sit and wait patiently until the next commercial break. Um, but one of those was The Frogman, an old black-and-white film that showed guys crawling up over the beach to, to blow up obstacles and uh, I asked my dad hey who are who are these guys and uh, he said those are frogmen and I said what's a frogman and he said ask your mother 
And uh, <laughs> so I asked my mom, and uh, she was a librarian at the time, and we went down to the local library that next week and did a bunch of research. And this was early 80s, so there's hardly anything. Yeah, there's very little out there. Yeah, very little out there. There's a couple mentions in a couple book chapters, a couple magazine articles. But my takeaway well, uh, at I'm age sure. seven. When did Dick Marcinko's book come out? 90s. Yeah, 90, oh, wow. Okay. 92, I think. Was the gotcha. Was Rogue Warrior. Uh, so this is uh, a decade before that. Um, well, even earlier. And, uh, yeah, the takeaway was, hey, this is a pretty elite fighting force, and the, the training is uh, touted in, in these articles anyway as some of the toughest ever devised by a modern military. So at age seven, they had me, and I was, I was in. And I uh, just kept my eye on that goal through junior high, high school, college, and then I enlisted after college because by then there was a little more out there. Uh, Marcinko's books, the first two anyway, yeah. had come out. There was a little bit more out there. There's no Internet yet, but you could still – there were a few more books. Uh, Point Man was out there. Um, uh, some a couple of the other Vietnam ones. Yeah, exactly. stuff, yeah. Exactly. So that was starting to, to come out in the wake of, uh, of Marcinko's first books. It's and, funny. Uh, yeah, it just, just – uh, I had, like, a similar experience. I think, like, the first time I ever heard of, like, special forces or special operations was watching um, – it was one of the Tom Clancy films that came out with Harrison Ford, where there's like this mission Clear where the, danger. where the SAS goes into the desert, oh, and yeah, it's like a covert operation. They raid a terrorist camp and they go into the tents. and And I remember I was probably ten or something like that, and I'm watching this with my mom, and I was like, "Mom, what? what? Like, I couldn't in my mind make sense. Like, is this a war or is it not a war? What is this?" And she's like, "It's a secret mission." I'm like, "Can they do that?" She's like, "Yeah." I was like, all right. <laughs> so you're a lot younger than I am. I think I was a, uh, I was in freshman in college when that movie came out. Uh, but I remember the guy sipping the coffee. That's a kill. Yeah, 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 exactly. So, I was yeah, like, I want to be that guy. Yeah, exactly, <laughs> exactly. So, yeah, I read all, yeah, uh, so that, all that, uh, both that fiction and then all that, that nonfiction that was coming out just kind of, you know, fed into what I wanted to do later and into my research. And um, I, through that research, I found out that uh, most officers aren't snipers, and I knew I wanted to be a sniper. So uh, even though I'd been to college, I enlisted because I wanted to go to sniper school and uh, ended up doing that with Brandon. Actually, we're in the same sniper oh, school really? class. Yep, <laughs> same sniper school class. And, uh, and I was back in 2000, so it was all Vietnam era type tactics Old that we school. were still, yep, yep, more of an, more of an art than a science. I'm going to have to mention this because, you know, it's funny. I was like, hey, Brandon, I did see him the other day. I was like, Brandon, are you familiar with Jack Carr? But I didn't, you know, <laughs> yeah, realize yeah. Jack Carr yeah. is not, you I, know. I your met, birthday. I, I, uh, I met with a, a SEAL yesterday, actually, former SEAL, and uh, Eric Davis was his instructor at sniper school. I was like, that's hilarious. Nice. <laughs> yeah. yeah, we had a good time, but it was definitely more of an art back then, especially the wind calls and all that. But uh, I would think now, especially with all the all instruments, the, uh, yeah, the advancements in technology and then the experience that we've had since September 11th, um, you know, I'm, I'm sure it's more of a blend of art and science uh, at this point. But it would be fun to go back through today and see what they're, yeah. what they're doing, you know, 18 years later. Yeah, I mean, I think it's changed tremendously just like GWAT era. Mm-hmm. You know, the technology has grown in leaps and bounds. And like you said, it's more about the math now than like trying to like eyeball the wind calls and stuff like that. Yeah, a lot more holds. Uh, yeah. Obviously, great advances in, in, in scopes and how they're doing it. It's just, it's incredible what I hear is going on out there today. So yeah. um, pretty cool. And I'll, I'll be incorporating that into to future novels, <laughs> that's for sure. So what made you want to make that jump then to officer? Yeah, so I, I, it was before September 11th, and I had some, uh, let's say, less than stellar leadership in my 
first couple of platoons. Um, and so I was like, hey, I can either complain about this or I can uh, I can go the officer route and do it better than it was done for me. Um, but truth be told, had September 11th happened in the spring of 2001, uh, I would have stayed enlisted and uh, and gone that other route. But as it was, it was uh, I had to make the decision in spring 2001. And when I got back from my first uh, or my uh, next deployment, off I went to OCS to uh, fold underwear and T-shirts for three months, which uh, somehow qualifies you to lead men into battle, and then right back to right back to the SEAL teams. Yeah. It, you don't have to go through a um, some sort. I know they don't make you go through buds, of course. Thanks, uh, second time, thank God. But do you have to go through some sort of like SEAL officer indoctrination? Or? I think now you go back uh, through SQT SEAL qualification training. I think uh, it depends. Okay. I think they were. Um, I didn't have to do that. I went right to the, maybe it was because of what was going on in the war at the time, but I went back, uh, right back to the SEAL teams to see team two. And then I was out the door to Afghanistan within a, within a few weeks, which was great wow. because I got some you know experience very early on as an officer and, um, yeah, I just couldn't put a, it was, it was, it was a great experience and then got back to team two and then it was a couple of Iraq deployments after that. But, um, yeah, it was a good, it was a good run for, for being an officer. Um, it was a, it was a good, a good, good run. So I feel very fortunate to have been able to do the things that I got to do for as long as I got to do them. Yeah, Ian was showing me your resume actually before uh, I guess the publicist shot it over to us and he was like, I can't believe how many SEAL teams this guy's been on. <laughs> and yeah. I was like, oh, he's an officer. So he kind of had to go to where the, the billets were. Right. Um, but yeah, you had a totally awesome run. It was pretty good. Yeah. For, the timing was for, you know pretty good, which is a, is a lot of it, of course. And um, uh, yeah, great experience at, uh, at all my teams. And uh, But now I kind of look at it as, hey, that's something I did and it's always a part of me, but now now I write. And yeah. I do some other things. I have some other businesses going as well, but uh, but I love writing. I'm so passionate about writing the whole the whole process, coming up with these, the ideas and coming up with the outlines and figuring out the titles and then problem solving, just like we did on the battlefield overseas, but doing it in fiction now. So I'm just aggressively solving problems on the written page instead of uh, downrange uh, with, with the guys. And so fi- it's, fiction it's is a really good place, I find, to explore ideas that... Um, you couldn't do uh, as, uh, say, a journalist or a historian or something like that. Or maybe, maybe it's just something that's very controversial, or maybe it's something that you're never really going to establish all the facts of. Sure. But fiction is a place where you can kind of explore different ideas and like what what if you know the what ifs. Sure. No, no, it's a great place. Great place for that. Great place to exercise some of that creativity and continue to because that's what it is: creative, aggressive problem solving downrange. That's uh, that's that's what all it is. And uh, doing the same thing here uh, in the pages of the of these books is uh, I find it to be one therapeutic and two a lot of fun. And uh, it's just, it, 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 I feel, like I said, I keep saying I feel very fortunate at because I do to be doing what I wanted to do since I was a, a little kid and, and to have it working out the way it is, is, uh, you know, it's beyond belief, really. One of the other things I wanted to ask you about, just going back to um, military stuff, was that I saw that um, when you were in the SEALs that your guys, you and your guys had worked with um, Iraqi counterparts and I think a lot of people have this idea in their head that SEALs or Rangers, like maybe that's something SF guys do. I don't think they realize that like our entire military has basically been doing that yeah. in this war. Right. The, uh, the foreign internal defense mm-hmm. um, thing has, uh, we, we were doing it before then and we'll continue to do it well into the future, I'm sure. But uh, yeah, book number two actually takes an experience oh, that okay, I had cool. working with the, uh, the Iraqis downrange and 
like 2006, I think it was. And uh, I, I took it a certain experience that happened, and I thought, hey, what if I just fictionalized this and made it a lot more interesting? And uh, and but but the so it is totally fiction, but the inspiration behind book number two comes from from a real, real world event. That's cool. Um, and then of course I totally fictionalized it and say, hey, what, what if this was actually a movie or actually a great book? How would I how would that read? And uh, there'd be way more firefights there. for one. <laughs> yeah, a lot more of that. Yeah, throwing some uh, some beautiful women. Uh, yeah. Some of that. So there's a uh, little some, some conspiracy. You got to have some bad guys out there too at the, the highest levels of uh, of government. That's always fun. So um, yeah. And last year I did uh, some reporting from the Philippines, and when I went and visited uh, NAVSOG, uh, the Philippine SEALs. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, there's a uh, American SEAL platoon there yeah. working with them and training them. And, I mean, those guys were doing great work out there. Yeah. There's a very strong relationship yep. between American SEALs and the Philippine SEALs. It's really cool to see. Yeah, yeah I got to spend a little time down there. Uh, and that's where I really you – know, I had. I think that was the first time I had more Army SF guys um, working with me than I did just SEALs. And, uh, you know, those guys have uh, been studying unconventional warfare and studying, um, you know, the culture and, and how to negotiate and uh, – do all that sort of thing from day one in the Q course, whereas ours is kind of after we do all the aggressive stuff after we weed right, out. Right. So it's kind of a, a it's kind of the flip model. But uh, I realized uh, there was a great guy down there. I won't say his name because I didn't ask him ahead of time. But a great warrant officer in uh, Army SF that was down there from first group. And uh, I realized that man, this guy knows what he's doing. He has been studying this part of the world and studying um, uh, unconventional warfare type stuff for a long, long time. And then that that uh, Army warrant course for SF guys is awesome. And and uh, I just learned so much there. So that's when I started catching up on uh, some of my, my studies uh, rather than just how to kick in, best way to kick in a door and take down a target and all that <laughs> stuff. But, so just kind of opened my aperture quite a bit. And uh, the Philippine um, Marine general in charge of our island uh, became like a mentor to me. That's how I, 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 that's how which, I worked that relationship. Which general was that? Um, what is his name? I'm forgetting his name right now. He actually wrote a, a thesis that's uh, on my bookshelf. Um, Guerrero. Was, was it Saban? No, no. Uh, Guerrero, I think. Guerrero? Anyway, I think okay. that's his name. No, so I don't, I don't know him. But, uh, yeah, great great guy, and uh, I just learned a ton from him. So I just said, hey, you know, I'm kind of uh, I'm here to learn from you. And I, I got to learn a, a lot on that deployment that actually found its way into the, the pages of the book because uh, that was that's the time cool. I could take a breath and actually study in the environment where these guys have been countering this insurgency for, you know, 100 years plus now. Oh, yeah. So they, Since they, the uh, Rebellion. Know, what they're, uh, know what they're doing. There. And Philippine Marines are great. They're like so in so many ways, they're like a mirror image of you. Marines, like you could take a Philippine Marine and put them in the American Marine Corps, and like you wouldn't be able to tell the difference between the yeah, two. <laughs> yeah. Have the same haircut, yeah. same stature. <laughs> no, exactly. <laughs> same attitude. Exactly. And just uh, <laughs> living out there amongst the amongst the populace down there, I, I learned a ton. So, and it was great preparation for my next deployment to Iraq because then I had even more Army SF guys than we were um, you know, in those four southernmost provinces of, of southern Iraq for the, the drawdown and eventual withdrawal. But um, yeah, it was uh, it was great preparation for that. And I've always had a great working relationship with uh, with Army SF. So um, yeah, it's been, it's been a, it, was, it was a good run. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And then uh, you went and did your... Um you had to go do some staff time at the uh, training center. I did. So when I got back, that's really when I decided, hey, it's uh, it's time to get out. But I still had a few years years left till I hit that that twenty year right, mark. Right. So it actually, the timing worked out very well for me. So even though I decided to get out when I got back from that deployment, because um, up until that point, I mean, what you owe it to the guys is to be solely focused on the the mission at hand. That's what you owe them, their families, you know, the mission, the country. Um, but 
I found when I wasn't taking guys downrange and was now moving to the training command as the uh, as the ops officer. So essentially, for people non-military listening, it's like a COO of a, a company just running day-to-day type operations. Um, uh, I had time to, to take a breath and think about that transition. And I know a lot of guys don't get that. A lot of guys come right off a of deployment and then say, hey, I'm getting out, and then they just have a certain number of months, um, possibly a year, to make that transition, but they haven't had the time to take a breath and really look around and explore what their right. what their options are and maybe intern at a few places to really understand, okay, if I get out of the military and move on to this other, um, this other sector, what is that really like? Is it different than I've read, uh, different than what I think it's going to be like, different than the movies I've seen about it? Um, so to really be able to uh, to explore their options, um, I, I, like I said, I, I had that time. Right. A lot we, of guys don't have that. We interviewed uh, Todd Apolsky uh, a few weeks back. He was a Marine, went, served in JSOC, and then came back to the Marine Corps, and he was saying how fortunate he was. And that the last couple of years in the Marine Corps, he's writing, like, policy letters or something. Uh, he, he, he was, or no, he's doing doctrine writing. And he was like, it was great that I got to share some of that knowledge with the force, but I also had a breather behind a desk yeah. to start to get my life together before I retired. Exactly. That was very beneficial. And being at the training command, I mean, that thing, Bud's, is, it's a machine, and it's, yeah. it's moving. So <laughs> whether you're there or not. It's, and it's grinding through human it, souls. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, it's crushing souls <laughs> daily. But the, I mean, the, the worst part, actually, was being, so my office was right there by the bell. Um, so my door was always open because I, I don't think we had air conditioning or it would go on at the wrong times. And was Anyway, so doors were always open. So I always had a view of that bell. So I got to see pretty much everybody that would walk up and stand there and ring that thing and put their helmet down. Wow. And you just feel so bad for these guys because you're like, you know, he could have had the same dream for the same amount of time that, that I did growing up. And uh, now he's you know made the decision to to uh, not continue with the program. You can just see it in their eyes. And it's uh, that was the, that's the toughest part to, to, to see. You know, you never. Yeah. You, you want the right guys to make it through, so it's a necessary part of the process. But you know, when you see it, it's like, oh man, that's just tough. Um, and then, of course, the the instructors just they switch once you do that, and they're not the the you know the nightmares oh, yeah. that uh, yeah. that they were up until that point. Because you know, you want these guys to think, hey, well, and it's true that hey, you can still go on, you can still serve your country, you can still do good things. Take what you've learned here um, and apply it to the rest of your life going forward. Um, so make this a productive type of type of thing rather than a demoralizing when, one. Um, when I went through uh, the Ranger indoctrination program, that was probably like the best tactic they had because the guys who quit, they got to go sit by the fire, eat an <laughs> MRE. And uh, I remember one of the instructors coming and lecturing us like in the middle of a smoke session at like three in the morning. And he was like, listen, men, you can get up and quit right now. Go sit by the fire. You can still be a good American. <laughs> still be a good soldier. Just quit. Yeah. You're, 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 you know, your friends can't see you. You're all laying down in the dirt. Just get up and quit. Go on. That got more people to quit than, you know, push-ups and flutter kicks all night. Oh, interesting. I mean, it works. Yeah. Yeah, I remember being in Buds in that surf, uh, you know, start of hell week, and everybody's just starting to quit in droves. And, uh, you know, sometimes guys would yell, hey, come back, come back, don't quit. And I was always just kind of quiet because I was like, hey, the process is working. Yeah, yeah. I'm like, I liked it. So I I feel bad saying that. We edit that. Um, But it (laughs) makes me sound like a terrible person. But uh, I I like it. You're being honest about, you know, the process and and the job that you had to do. I get it. Especially while you're going through the process, you want to be one of those last men standing. I I get it. Because you can't have somebody who wants to figuratively ring the bell in combat. Like, yeah, you can't have it. And you got to trust that the guy next to you is going to stick it out with you. Yeah, so it seems to be working. And, uh, you know, what we do have a harder time with is selecting for character. So it's 
easy to find that guy that can run really fast and, and not quit. Yeah. But how do you select for character? And I think uh, that's true uh, across the board. I think. Yeah. So I think the Israelis do. They do a few different things where they actually get data points on that as the guys go through for. I think it's called. They probably changed the name, but you know, flotilla thirteen. Their version of the seals. Oh yeah, yeah. Um, so S thirteen. Yeah. So they do things that uh, uh, you know, they give a group of uh, guys shovels or paddles and tell them, hey, dig a foxhole for yourself and dig one for the for the team here, and then we'll see which ones dig their dig the their own first and which ones jump in and do the group one and Interesting. just a little, little data point. And so they do a few different things like that where they collect some information on character and can drop people for that. Um, so, yeah. yeah I didn't know that at all. That's mm-hmm. really interesting. Yeah, we don't necessarily do that uh, as well in our in our training pipelines. They might do it now, but, uh, you know, as of when I left, uh, it was still uh, push-ups, sit-ups, run, obstacle course, swim, well, we, don't you quit. Well, you can see the strains on the military after 16 years of war that, you know, starting to fray. The, the ethics, the morality, things like that starting to fray a little bit. So, yeah, I think you're right. It's important to, to look at those things as well. Yeah, at least data points and at least have the, you know, the, the leadership has, has options if you need to get rid of somebody that is actually passing the course on paper, but it doesn't have that, um, for lack of a better word, team ability. doesn't have that, that piece that we're looking for, that intangible. Well, that's why you have non-selects, right, guys, who, like, like they um, – we do it in the army. I, I, I think the Navy does the same. Like they can like board guys out. Like technically they made it through all these physical mm-hmm. events, but like that guy's not a team player. Right. Right. So yeah, I think we do something similar, but you have to generate a lot of paperwork. Uh, so it, sometimes it uh, sometimes guys do slip through. Like in any isn't like that anything. isn't that technically what happened to that Dan Bilzerian guy? I mean, he went through the whole training twice, right? I believe. I think I heard him on Rogan, and uh, he talked something about something like that. And then, yeah, I'm not sure. I'm not sure I wasn't there at the time. But I and I believe Brandon interviewed him for Safra. Oh, did he, he really? Yeah, and he talked years ago. And I think he talked about that he, you know, made it through buds, did the entire thing physically, and at the, I guess at the very end, I wouldn't know because this is not my area of expertise. But they were just like, this is not the right guy for the job. Maybe, possibly. I don't know. Yeah, that's what I believe I, was kind of revealed in the interview you did with Brandon. I mean, I can tell you it definitely happens in a special forces assessment and selection. You have guys who do well on all the physical events. They make it to the end of the course, but they're not selected. Right. They're not invited to come to the qualification course. Got it. And it's because the instructors see something. Right. And, and actually, um, they do a, a lot of... Um, team events yeah. in SFAS to see how you work with other people, right. how do you how do you relate to other people, Got and it. people end up becoming non-selects because of that. Interesting. Because, yeah, that's that's good. Yeah. That's good. That's probably the most, uh, a more important trait than if you, you know, run uh, your, your three miles in, you know, 15 minutes or, or 16. Yeah. Uh, but how yeah. you... Uh, how you do it, uh, deal with the, the with the team aspects of this, and how you contribute. So that's really what it's all about: is is uh, you know adding value to the team, and is this person going to add value when he shows up at a SEAL team in his first platoon? Um, and that's that's what you're really looking for. You might remember we had Secretary Ryan Zinke in studio, former SEAL, and uh, it was just like moments before he became a member of the administration. Uh, and, you know, it's funny, if you listen back to that full episode, I did ask him, like, would you accept a position in the Trump administration? He gave me a very political answer. But Ryan is a really cool guy, uh, or Commander Zinke, and it was just such an honor to have him in studio um, really shortly before things shook up for him. And he was, I guess, just the congressman from uh, Montana, you could say the lone congressman. Uh, but, I mean, that's still a pretty cool position and powerful because you're, 
the lone congressman, as he talked about in that full episode. Um, and this is from episode 226. Brandon Webb was in studio as well. And so was our friend Scott McEwen, the co-author of American Commander. In this clip, we talk about now Secretary Mattis, because this was prior to him getting the position, uh, talking about his position on torture with the current president, Donald Trump. From there, we get into some issues with the VA. Brandon Webb gives some solutions. Check it out. This uh, this particular article is from Military.com, but I thought this was interesting. Uh, retired General James Mattis surprised President-elect Donald Trump by suggesting he rethink his position on waterboarding, telling him that beer and cigarettes were a better alternative in terror suspect interrogations. Trump said that the advice from Mattis, a front-runner for the defense secretary post in a Trump administration, would weigh heavily on whether he will go forward with, a camp- with campaign pledges to bring back waterboarding and torture and interrogations by the military and the CIA. In his meeting last week with the man he calls Mad Dog Mattis, Trump said he asked, what do you think of waterboarding? And he said, I was surprised, he said, I've never found it to be useful. Trump said Mattis told him, I've always found, give me uh, give me a pack of cigarettes and a couple of beers, and I do better with that than I do with torture. Mattis is probably talking about his nephews. You know, but I've also <laughs> been, I thought that was interesting. I've also been with Mattis about negotiating with tribal members. And his negotiation technique, you know, in some cases was, all right, either you give me this or I'll destroy your entire village. Sure. <laughs> so, you know, That's about so, it. so there's, there's some other other uh, techniques that are involved in this. But I, th- I think Mattis would be a great choice. I, I, I think he's a warrior. And I think with the Department of Defense, I think we're, we're too heavy on the bureaucracy. We need to streamline it where the decisions that are now being made in Washington really are frontline decisions. We need to push things back down the chain of command, empower your frontline commanders to make the decision and back you and back them. But when the decisions are all being rolled up by layers and layers and layers of bureaucracy, what you do is you lose initiative on the battlefield and it costs lives. And so I think we need to push that authority down. And Mattis, of all people, understands that. That's why I was a little, um, just looking at the the current candidates for the uh, Secretary of Veteran Affairs, um, Scott Brown and Jeff Miller, didn't seem like very strong choices to me. Cause, and, you know, one of them came from out of the VA, right? Lola is here in the studio with us. Um, <clears throat> and, you know, when you talk about the bureaucracy, that, that to me seems what what's a major issue at the VA today is this massive red tape. And if you don't have the fortitude, like I can go into the VA and, and pound my way through that system because, you know, I... I'm not struggling with depression or any of these other issues. The guys that really need help that are picking up that phone or, you know, that need the psychological help or the medical care just aren't getting it. And it's because of this massive bureaucracy. Like It's like going to the DMV where you you have people that work there that just can't wait to fight, figure out how to say no. So I don't, I don't know if you have any thoughts on, on that. Well, I do know Jeff Miller, and, uh, <coughs> and I like him a lot. Uh, I think with the VA... It's it's the it's culture, the culture has to change. Yeah, and I, I think you know a path ahead is to empower the front line to make these decisions. But you know the VA, you have on one side, you know what is the VA? Are they going to be a full service hospital, or are they going to look at at service related injuries? Uh, as servicemen get older in time, is the is the VA's evolving? You know, a lot of the their procedures are, are aging, uh, hip replacements that really aren't related to the service-related injury if, if they had one. 
So the VA has expanded its role. Uh, you have some members, not a, one a lot, but enough, say they're a victim. They're not a victim, yep. but they're clogging the system uh, in there. And, of course, you know, there's only you know, so much money and so many resources. And when people clog the system, and it's, you know, a lot of times it's the people that are beating the desk the hardest are the least deserving. And what it does is it brings resources away from people that really need the resources, uh, that, that really are suffering from PTSD, that really have some problems, and that's what you got to focus. And I, I think the way to do it is, is it empower the people at the front lines, empower the health care provider. They don't have to reach back and ask permission, you know, 15 layers of bureaucracy above. Empower the people to make the right decision at the front line. Well, and then the, to your point on culture, and, and I've come out of the SEAL teams and, and being in the executive world and, and building a business uh, from scratch, you know, really appreci- made me appreciate the SEAL culture that we had of just get it done no matter what. And if you don't know the answer to the problem, you're just going to go figure out who does have the answer and get the job done. Um, but I've seen it like I read probably two to three books a month on businesses, and I'm in this entrepreneurs organization in New York, 11,000 members globally um just some amazing entrepreneurs and i've seen these these guys like the way to fix culture is you've got to go in there you need a strong leader and you need to come up with a very simple clear vision and anyone that doesn't buy into that you get you get them out of there and and that's to me that the va like the culture it's you need a strong leader but you need to go in there and clean the decks if anyone's not buying into that you get rid of them you put new leadership in place because you've got to build that culture um, you know, it, it it really does come, I believe, from uh, the top down. Like, and you've got to set the example. Recently, um, you know, we had we have a guy, a company that manages our ad implementation for our website. So, a company like Taurus wants to advertise. They come in. Here's the ad campaign. Um, we were running a Black Friday special, and we sent our ads on. This was, I think, Friday. And we said, hey, we need some more to the ad company. And I said, we need some more some more ads, like jam these in into the network. And the guy, all the guy said was, oh, that's why are you sending this on a Friday? And he, all he did was bitch and complain. I was like, you're fired. <laughs> I was like, and I told my team, I was like, look, we don't have time for anybody that's going to come up with excuses of why they can't do anything. And I got emails from, from some of the, from some of my teammates um, my brand guy, Jason, who, who you've met, sure. he was like, hey, man, I really appreciate that, that we have this culture around here where people that come up with excuses or say no, like you just, we don't tolerate that. And so that's, I mean, that's a little bit of a rant, but um, it's very important to me to build that, build that culture and really mirror the, the culture and spirit of, of the special operations community is where we just don't have time for that. We, we just don't have time for it. And, and when you foster that culture, uh, it really does boost the morale of everyone uh, on well, the whole team, and that—that's what I, you know, yeah, think you need to the focus on on the healthcare providers. Uh, we're like most government organizations; we've just become too bureaucratic. Yeah, we're too top heavy. Um, uh, I love the Trump thing about the the hiring freeze because you and I both know we've worked with those GS guys that should have been fired years ago. We should do a hiring freeze and then as people people leave you should hire at lower lower levels uh, yeah. and, and 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 be able to get rid of the GS guys right and, that aren't one, performing and, and streamline yeah, yeah and there's a VA accountability act 
Well, what, you should you should be able to fire a person for gross negligence. Uh, I mean, I think that's fair. I had a tenant. I had a tenant in Ocean Beach. I owned a four-unit apartment building. This guy worked for the city of San Diego, and he was the only guy I didn't run credit on him. He was an engineer for the city of San Diego. I looked at his resume, didn't bother running credit. Four months later, when he hasn't paid his rent, I'm like, holy shit, what just happened? Turns out I called his, I called the city. Oh, yeah, he hasn't been to work in 12 months. Yeah. He's a meth addict. Him and his girlfriend are, like, doing drugs in this. You know, I couldn't get rid of him. I was like, you've been just paying him? He hasn't been to work in 12 months? Yeah, you know, it's just... It just is what it is. I'm like, this is crazy. How can a government worker not show up to work for 12 months and still draw a paycheck? And he's got a meth problem. So, um, but anyway, that's just an example. Like, that's how I feel like this GS system is set up where people should be fired for gross negligence or poor performance. And it's very hard to get rid of, almost impossible to get rid of a well, government and, service. And there are some work. really, really good people. Agreed. Uh, that Agreed. work in there. And, you know, you, you, give, you, you give them a, uh, power and authority to do good things, generally they will. But when you have a bureaucracy that goes, no one can say yes. Uh, you know, 25 deaths, all they can say is no. Yeah. And, and you know, medical decisions need to be made on the front line very quickly. And, and so the, the VA does need, need to do a, a, a cultural shift. And then we have to decide whether the, what, what's the core of the VA. Is it going to be all service, all medical, all the time? Or is it going to be focus on on service-related injuries? Are you going to be a specialty and outsource the other things? And these these are decisions that have to be had to be made. But uh, most people would agree the current system uh, is inadequate and not working. Yeah, agreed. Absolutely. And that's all for this episode of Soft Rep Radio. I hope that you guys enjoyed it. I know that there was some great feedback on the best of Army Special Operations episode that we did. So I figured, hey, let's do something for the SEALs. And uh, that was this. And I should point out, I I know a lot of you guys listen on SoundCloud or Apple Podcasts. So some of those episodes in the twos, like Ryan Zinke 226 or Frumentarius 261, you're not going to see up on Apple Podcasts or SoundCloud because we don't have the full back catalog of those episodes on there. So you might be wondering, where do I get those? Well, as I mentioned earlier, softrepradio.com is our new website, and the full archive is all there. And if you're wondering, you don't have to be a uh, subscriber or anything like that. It's all there for your listening pleasure. So you can check out those full episodes, softrepradio.com. And if you enjoyed it, let your friends know. Spread the word. Spread it out on Twitter, on Facebook, on Instagram, wherever you're active on social media. You could follow me on Twitter at Ian Scotto. Let me know what you think. I try to be interactive with you guys. And uh, that's about it. We'll be back, as always, on Wednesday with a new episode of the Checking This Out as it came out. And uh, enjoy your weekend, folks. You've been listening to Soft Rep Radio. New episodes up every Wednesday and Friday. Follow the show on Instagram and Twitter at Soft Rep Radio.